0: Uh, good evening everyone, uh, my name is Michael Anderson, I work at the Faculty of Education and Social Work in the University of Sydney. Welcome to this Vivid Ideas uh, presentation on teaching the teachers and creativity. Thank you so much for coming this evening. I think uh, by the end of this evening, well I hope by the end of this evening you'll be provoked, excited um, and inspired to uh, change some of the things you do and do some of the, some of the things you do more often. Before we begin this evening, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I'd also like to say uh, that Aboriginal Australians uh, have been teaching us about creativity for thousands and thousands of years. Their connection with this land and and the people of this land have really shown us the way forward in in creativity. So we don't want to pretend tonight in any way that creativity is something that we've uh, made up in the last 220 years. I'd also uh, commend the vivid display in the quad. Um, There's an amazing light show that's, uh, that's out there. Uh, and uh, it's something to behold. So go and check that out, as well as some of the other vivid, um, vivid things going on this week. So tonight, we thought we would, uh, as well as kind of giving you some of the best minds in creativity that we could find, um, which are fantastic. <laughs> that sounded a little bit facetious. It wasn't meant to. Um, we thought we'd actually try something creative and get a, get a performer in to perform for you this evening. Liz Martin is an accomplished and award-winning singer-songwriter who's played with the likes of Silverchair and, uh, and other luminaries around Sydney. One of uh, her recent reviews said, in a sweet, uh, sweet spot between jazz, pop and folk, Liz Martin has found a groove that perfectly conveys the subtle, wistful longing of a poet's muse with a suite of songs that range from heartachingly tender ballads to playful instrumentals. In 2011, Liz received a touring grant from the Contemporary Music, Music Touring Program to tour Dance A Little, Live A Little throughout rural and metropolitan Australia. She is a well-known singer-songwriter around Sydney uh, and her gigs are very well, um, very well subscribed. Please welcome Liz Martin. Uh,
1: thanks, Michael. That was actually one of the nicest intros. Um, okay, so... My part of this brief little interlude is to sing you a song. We're going to pretend we're somewhere else and that I'm wearing a red frock. It'll help. (laughs) Imagine, um, I'm thinking like a David Lynch set to a film. We've already got the theatre, so that kind of helps. The PowerPoint, don't worry about it. Uh, So, Red Frock, this is a song inspired by Buffy. Buffy. The vampire slayer. <laughs> it's a serious song. It's a it's a ballad. But it's an example of the fact that you can write pretty much about anything and you can be inspired by pretty much anything. Um, it's a love song uh, between someone that's already passed on and someone that's still walking around. Um, anyway, I'll share, it. I'll share it with you and I hope you enjoy it. Oh, I also usually... I have a very superb sound system, so equate that in. I sound great on on a beautiful microphone with reverb. I look really good too. Red frock. Time mm-hmm. So normally when I perform, there's a guy playing the saw. Have you seen the saw? You heard a saw being played?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it sounds a little like an old lady. So if you could help me out all together. You ready? So try and do it till your lips wobble. Tonight. Thank you. Okay, so this one small, this is going to take just like, like a moment. But um, the other part of my, my role here is to write a song with you all tonight. Like now. We have about a minute in the schedule to do this. So, Meredith is passing out some paper. Could you please, without editing, without being too fancy pants, write down the first word or phrase you think of when I say the word creativity to you? Okay, so it might be your relationship with creativity. It might be, for me, it's a cup of tea. It's a pretty exciting word, phrase. Uh, It might be, that's not me, it might be my favourite thing, it might be uh, something I'm going to do in retirement, it might be rock and roll, it might be a bottle of whiskey. Whatever you associate with creativity for yourself, be it a feeling or a place or your favourite jumper or a hat or a lucky token, totem, token, token. Any of that, just write, first thing pops into your head. Please write it on a piece of paper. Any questions? Have you finished? If you haven't written it yet and you're in the back row, you're thinking too much. Don't get all fancy pants, I have to make it work and rhyme. If there's any big words in there, it's going to make it very tricky. So when you're done, just pass them forward. First word, first phrase.
0: Okay. I reckon uh, <laughs> you've got your work cut out there for you, Liz. <clears throat> Good luck with that. Well, there's a few more. On you, Kelly. One more, all right, last one. Excellent, thank you. Thanks, Thanks Liz. Give Liz a round of applause. She's got a work cut out for her. Now, what I wanted to do before we begin is just explain uh, the process for this evening. We will do a series of 10-minute uh, discussions or 10-minute talks based on uh, each of our area of expertise. Uh, and then when I say our, I mean there. Um, so uh, the, the uh, panellists will speak for about 10 minutes. Um, and then at the end we want to be involved in a discussion with you about some of the things that come up, so please actively listen, think about some of the questions you have, some of the ways you want to test this idea, some of the contributions you want to make, because we want to have a a fairly fruitful discussion at the end, so think about that as much as you can. It's my uh, pleasure and privilege to invite, uh, first up, Professor Robin Ewing to speak to you. Robin was initially a primary school teacher and she is currently Professor of Teacher Education in the Arts and Acting Pro-Dean of the Faculty of Education and Social Work. She is a leader of creativity uh, in our our university and our faculty, she is one of those people that so many of us look up to when we want to know what it is that we need to do to make a difference in education and her life's work has been making a difference in education. So can you please uh, join me in welcoming Professor Robin Ewing.
3: Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Liz, and thank you to all of you for being here tonight. Um, I hope Michael's going to tell me when to stop, because um, 10 minutes, we've all said that 10 minutes is, is is going to be quite difficult for us to adhere to. Um, I want to start by challenging the title of um, our discussion tonight, um, that that this is about teaching the teachers creativity because I want to suggest that it's about actually helping teachers to rediscover their creativity. I work with both pre-service and experienced teachers and It worries me a lot of the time when they say, oh, look, I'm not creative at all. And often I'll start a session by saying, well, how many of you feel that you're creative? And only a few very brave people will will venture to put up their hands. And yet I want to suggest to you that we are all born creative, playful, imaginative, and I guess um, I'll, I'll take my grandchildren as um, an indicator of that for me, as, as lately, having had the great pleasure of watching 11 little people so far um, grow up without actually being their parent, having, having the privilege of being a little bit more distanced as their, as their grandparent and watching how creative they are, listening to the incredible questions that they ask, and just being in awe of how their minds work. And yet, I would suggest to you that all of us were like that as little people. And somewhere along the way, and sadly, sometimes informal education contexts we get the message that we're not creative that we need to play guess what's in the teacher's head that the teacher has the right answer and that part of our job as students is to guess that answer not just when we're small and at school but also when we're at university And so um, what I'd suggest to you is that we all need to rediscover and make time to play and to explore and to be curious and to dream dreams and to start to actually appreciate that we are all creative. And I'd like to suggest that teaching is, or good teaching, quality teaching, is actually a very creative act, and that there's act, there's actually a lot of artistry involved, and that again, teachers need to rediscover that and to celebrate that. And I suggest to you that perhaps some of our policies have uh, perhaps constrained teachers more than they would like to be constrained, and is that that some of them are actually steering them in 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 a very uncreative direction. Um, I'd like to to talk a little bit about um, perhaps some of the misperceptions that we have about creativity, some of the stereotypes. Um, I know that um, often we think that some people are creative and have these really great ideas, that that they are... um, really capable of coming up with something different and inventing things and they're just born like that. You know, they've got this sort of genius that other people haven't. And certainly it's been important in in our work um, at Sydney Story Factory to look at uh, the literature about creativity and to find that um, actually things like being disciplined and learning to work collaboratively and learning to be persistent or resilient are actually part of it and it's that okay there might be that individual spark sometimes but there are other ways of being creative and it it is something that's possible for all of us one of the things that's been important in teacher education uh, at University of Sydney is uh, to to actually explicitly address this, and I work mostly with early childhood and primary teachers, um, pre-service teachers, early career teachers, um, to start, if you like, undoing some of the lessons that they've learnt along the way in their university course. So I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Robin Gibson, Dr. Victoria Campbell, who I particularly work with in the arts in early childhood and in primary. And just to say that um, when we ask our pre-service teachers in fourth year to actually do things imaginatively and creatively, sometimes they get very anxious. When we've asked them to actually um, present something in a creative way, not necessarily through an essay, or a paper, or we've asked them to um, to actually think about the, the criteria themselves for their assignments. Um, it's been surprising to us that at the beginning there is a degree of anxiety. By the end of that those two units in fourth year, they are talking about how this is what university should be like, that it should be that opportunity to, to actually think for themselves and do things differently. But again, just like sometimes learning at school has constrained our thinking and our creativity, I I suggest that perhaps sometimes in tertiary context as well that happens. And one of the things that we've tried to do with both the School Drama Project, which is about um, upskilling primary teachers to use drama with quality literature to improve children's literacy and Sydney Story Factory, which is about working one-to-one with children to help them explore their creativity through creative writing. In both of those contexts, we've started to apprentice our um, pre-service teachers with others in those particular contexts because it's one thing for us to talk about it at university and in our primary education courses and also for them to hopefully be confident enough to have a go during their professional experience but it's another thing for them to actually take some of those courageous steps when they're early career teachers in the profession and go against the grain and so um, I'd like to acknowledge Sydney, the partnership with Sydney Theatre Company, which has actually enabled us to put actors or teaching artists in classrooms with teachers who actually benefit so much for seeing creative learning, creative practices modelled and with their own class of, of children and then to have the opportunity to try it out in that kind of supported mentoring environment and then now to have been able to apprentice some of our primary teachers pre-service primary teachers with those teaching artists in classroom situations so again it's it's actually allowing us to enact some of those things in a real classroom So I guess um, similarly at Sydney Story Factory, having our pre-service teachers have the opportunity to sit alongside children who are having the chance to write creatively, to watch the storyteller-in-chief, Richard Short, um, actually presenting a whole lot of interesting ideas and then to watch what happens when children have a chance to have a go. To learn to take risks, risks in a context where they're not going to be measured by a traditional mark, etc., and to see what happens over time is really important. Um, so I guess one of the things that I'd like to suggest is that we need to see the crea- we need to see creativity as something that should be happening across the curriculum as something that is actually really what quality teaching and learning is all about. But, we, but the first base is about getting back in touch with that ourselves, having the chance to play and explore, and having the chance to ask the big questions again, just like little children do every day.
0: So one of the things we did when we put this together is we wanted to hear diverse voices from different places and Miranda Jefferson uh, is one of those voices that has been part of the university but is also now part of um, teaching and learning in a very big way. She is a teaching educator in challenging pedagogy with the Catholic Education Office in the Parramatta Diocese. She's involved in programs, initiatives and research in arts, pedagogy, literacy and teacher professional learning in primary and secondary schools across the western suburbs of Sydney. I suppose I've known Miranda through uh, teaching drama and, and other circles for about 15, 20 years now. And what I know about Miranda is that she is one of the most perceptive insightful and creative teachers around Uh, and the uh, Catholic Education Office and indeed our educational community is uh, so lucky to have her so I'd like to uh, I'd like to invite her to the stage this evening. Miranda Jefferson.
4: Thank you Michael. That's not me. (laughs) That's me. I have three questions to pose to you all. Are you a creative teacher? Why do you need to be a creative teacher? How can you become a creative teacher? So to begin, are you a creative teacher? Well, you probably are because you're here at this forum. And that's because, as Robert J Sternberg says, creativity is a decision. But lots of primary and secondary teachers, in my experience, and obviously robins, don't see it that way. I can tell you how many... I can't tell you how many times I hear from teachers in schools, oh, but I'm not creative. And I feel like saying, well, of course you're not, because you've decided not to be. But it's more than that. It's what they have decided creativity means. They have decided that to be creative is to excel in some aspect of the arts. Now, I used to be head of drama at Newtown High School of the Performing Arts and was extremely stimulated and challenged working with the students and the staff there, and I just loved it. My mind wasn't in neutral. It was in the atrophy overdrive of creativity. I felt what sent Macali Is that right, Michael? oh, thank you, calls, calls flow. I was experiencing the thrill of discovering something new through creativity. But I left Newtown 10 years ago. And to be honest with you, I could not imagine life without my flow drug. I had the opportunity to lecture at Sydney University and do a PhD in education, of which all these people have had a big role. And what I couldn't believe, that my drug of choice, flow, came back. I discovered creativity in doing a PhD. But then I hit the post-PhD funk, which is a bit like post-show blues. I realised that I wanted to put into practice what I'd learnt from my research and my experience at university. I wanted to make some kind of difference. And that's led me to work with the Catholic Education Office at in the Parramatta Diocese, which runs from Parramatta all the way up to Katoomba. And I have to tell you that I have personally experienced flow, the flow of creativity, big time. So to return to my first question, are you a creative teacher? To answer that, that is to just understand that creativity is a decision. It is to decide to discover and create something new. My own career as a director and teacher in the arts, to a researcher, to a teaching educator illustrates this. And if creativity is the ability to produce novel, high quality, task appropriate products, and if wisdom is to seek a common good, then in combining creativity with wisdom, we have teaching. Teaching should always be creative because Every child that learns with us should be a novel, high-quality product or person. And every child, in turn, should learn to be creative. Which answers the next question. Why do you need to be a creative teacher? Simply because learning, I would argue, is a creative process or should be. For students to learn deeply, that is to be able to transfer their learning to a new situation and become lifelong learners, we as teachers must model creativity and teach for creativity for deep learning to occur. What I see in my work in the western suburbs of Sydney is too many young people not being equipped with the capacity for creativity and deep learning. Yet it is what our young people need as we move rapidly to a post-industrial world where we need new ideas in sustainability for our well-being, our environment, our economic future. This is why we need all teachers, so I agree with Robin, but perhaps through a different lens, all teachers need to be creative. And so to the third question, How do you become a creative teacher? Well, I can only explain the how by telling you what I've been trying to do to help teachers to find their creativity. I began part-time with CEO two years ago, and now my work is full-time there. There are two parts to my work. First, I call my Trojan horse. It's drama literacy, and it's very like Robin's school drama. I work with theatre artists and teachers and use drama pedagogy in primary classrooms linked to literacy and other learning areas. We use process drama and the students also create drama performances. In drama literacy, children are transformed in many ways through the learning. But most importantly, the targeted classroom teachers begin to build creative pedagogy into their practice. And those targeted teachers then teach drama literacy to other classes and teachers in the school and over time creative and embodied pedagogy becomes embedded as part of the school culture. With the Trojan horse, that is drama literacy, now in a number of schools we have built a lot of trust and respect with principals, teachers and with CEO. So next comes the real game changer. I'm going to leave the Trojan horse analogy because I don't want to be analogous to the sacking of Troy and, and what happened to the women of Troy and all that, so I'll leave that. Uh, the real game changer after drama literacy is the learning wheel. As a teaching educator, I have been very fortunate to have the opportunity to transform an underperforming CEO high school called Delaney College in Granville. It has students from low socioeconomic backgrounds and draws from about 38 different nationalities. Having worked already in some of the feeder primary schools as well as the high school, I knew these young people were not socialised for learning. They were functioning in a state of entropy. I created the wheel as a way for teachers and students to understand what learning is. The learning wheel is a framework to redefine or reassess what we are doing in schools. There is nothing new in the wheel. The wheel is based on the US National Research Council's meta-analysis of what the 21st century competencies are and what deep learning is. And there are three aspects to the learning wheel and all have to exist for deep learning transfer to occur. There is the cognitive domain, where there is problem solving, communication and creativity. There is the intrapersonal, which is the capacity to manage our behaviour and emotions to show focus, grit and curiosity. And there is the interpersonal domain of relating to to, to each other through empathy, influence and teamwork. Now, the arts in education have always looked at the whole child by combining the cognitive with the affective and the relational in this way. The learning wheel is a lens to address the fundamentals needed for deep learning processes to occur. And the radical nature of the wheel is that content knowledge is just a vehicle to serve the wheel. You look to the wheel for what needs to be developed for learning to progress. You look to the wheel for pedagogy, for assessment, for teacher capacity building, for the way the curriculum is constructed, for how the timetable is constructed and for the way the school runs. So what has this meant for the young people in year seven at Delaney College where we have begun to wheel out the wheel? All year seven, learn in a flexible learning space together with a core team of five teachers. They start the day with brain push-ups, which are mind-body focus exercises. They learn, or they're learning to learn through collaboration. They are learning to communicate. They are learning to communicate their learning. The curriculum is being transformed by being English is being a communicator. Maths is being a navigator. Monday is being a scientist. Tuesday is being an artist. Wednesday is being a designer. Thursday is being us and Friday is being me. Faculties will gradually disappear because the learning is constructed around integrated curricula, learning stages and student interest. The principal and assistant principal teach with the core team in the space each day because they are instructional leaders of learning, not administrators. The school will ultimately be connected with other schools and the community as an innovation center. And certainly the school day will no longer be nine till three. And how is this happening? Simply through pedagogy. The pedagogy focuses on the four Cs, collaboration, communication, creativity, and critical thinking, as well as a healthy dose of embodied cognition through those four Cs. The four Cs foresee our students' future in a post-industrial society and in a term and a half it has already been transformational for Year 7 at Delaney College. There's still a way to go but they are now socialised for learning. We are also beginning a 4C pilot in primary schools based on the wheel. It has some middle-class schools, children of professional migrants and another with children of Anglo-Celtic background, who are already socialised for learning. The principals there want to focus on the 21st century competencies and the four C's. The learning wheel is a game changer because it focuses on learning, not content and compliance. And if I return to my questions, I would answer, you have to be a creative teacher for real or deep learning to occur. Vygotsky saw learning as a psychological developmental process that can only happen through creativity. He said, development never ends its creative work. So deep learning is creativity. It's the ability to discover and connect to something new. And creativity is to defy the status quo and come up with something new. That with wisdom will serve the common good. The work I am doing currently in Western Sydney is to encourage, enhance and challenge the creative potential in our schools and transform schools into places of wonder, innovation and flow. So it is up to schools and teachers, I would argue, to decide to be creative and treat learning as a creative process Because creativity is a decision.
0: Dr Julie Dunn is an associate professor and member of the Griffith University Applied Theatre Team. Uh, She has taught in Hong Kong. She's actually about to jump on a plane and go to China and speak to thousands of uh, Chinese delegates about early childhood learning. Um, She is one of uh, the jewels in the crown of um, arts education in Australia. She's an independent thinker. She's a provocateur. But she's also someone who works in extraordinarily interesting places, with refugee children, with people with dementia. She's always doing something interesting, something new, and she's also a fierce supporter of the Queensland Rugby League team. (laughs) Can you please welcome? Can you please welcome Julie Dunn?
5: Thanks, Michael. I'll just get my iPad functioning. Okay. Yes, Michael's right. I work at Griffith University in Brisbane, and uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, Griffith University is a very diverse university, um, which spread across three cities that all cling to the coastline, um, Brisbane, Logan and Gold Coast. They're within an hour of each other, but they're very disparate cities, very contrasting in terms of their demographics. Um, and I have the lucky circumstance to teach arts education across all three campuses simultaneously, so I get to drive up that corridor continuously. The courses I teach there are part of the Bachelor of Education Primary. I also teach in the Bachelor of Arts in Applied Theatre, Master of Drama Education Applied Theatre in Hong Kong. But I wanted to talk today in a general sense about the arts rather than just drama, and, the degre- and the, in particular this Bachelor of Education Primary Arts 1 and Arts 2. I think we're really lucky. We have two arts courses in our B.Ed. primary and they run for whole semesters. Bravo. And we teach all five arts disciplines. But that's incredibly challenging. (coughs) It's incredibly challenging to work with second-year students who are themselves about 19 or 20 mostly. Obviously, we have mature-age students as well. And actually try to nurture in them the ability to teach five disciplines of the arts when they graduate. When they graduate, they're going to go into an environment that's not particularly creativity friendly in many cases. And in Queensland at the moment, in our education system, we have this wonderful thing called C2C, curriculum to classroom, which is pretty much turning teachers, I believe, into animated robots which is actually taking the Australian curriculum and turning it into a series of templates and formal processes that every teacher must follow. So here I am trying to create teachers of the future in the arts and I'm working to prepare them for a system which is actually trying to narrow their skills and professionalism. Fortunately, some of them might get to go and teach in other states, so that would be a good thing. And I... Hello, Education Queensland. Um, All right, so... (laughs) All right, so it's a challenging job for me, this Arts 1 and Arts 2 courses. And I have to say, this semester was my first go at it because the first, it's a new degree, a new Australian curriculum. This is our chance. And my very first class, same as Robin, is, and, and certainly the same as Miranda, is confronted with 300 very wonderful and warm-hearted future educators who say to me, I don't have any imagination. Well... It's it's actually not even no creativity, it's no imagination. Can you imagine a world where people walk around with no imagination? It's not possible. We wouldn't be able to imagine waking up in the morning if we didn't have an imagination. We'd be stuck in bed forever, which actually wouldn't be such a bad thing. So, So I want to talk today about this fear these students have about engaging their own and young children's emotions. So the the course is called Arts 1 is Arts in Early Childhood. I would have thought if I'm going to be an early childhood teacher, I'm going to take this subject and I'm going to run with it because this is the heart and soul of what I do as an educator, but no. No, that's not the case at all. And so when I was preparing for this today, I'm trying to work out what's going on in their minds that makes them feel like they don't have any imagination. What's happened? In our education system, that we produce young people of 19 who say, I don't have any imagination. They're also resistant to something else which is connected to imagination, which is emotion. They're scared of emotion in the classroom. Oh, I couldn't do that. That might make the children sad. Or I couldn't do that. That might make them a little frustrated. Or I couldn't do that. It might make them feel. It's terrifying that they have a fear of emotion themselves in our classroom. Oh, that's a bit risky, Julie. I might feel sad if I engage in that activity. So they're afraid a little bit, it seems, of both, which is interesting because Vygotsky actually connects those two together, imagination and emotion. Vygotsky's only recently translated, and I say recently, 2004, and it's interesting that Miranda was also quoting Vygotsky, um, his work... Um, that was about the cycle of imagination. And in that work, Vygotsky talks about the relationship between emotion and imagination. And they're two things I'm passionate about. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about emotion is that I'm actually researching emotion in drama at the moment. And just as an aside, um, I've just completed, like, a, a small kind of tour of many countries teaching the same drama with very different participant groups, all adults, by the way. And so far from our our research process, in the one drama, 38 different emotions were identified as being generated through that one experience. I find that fascinating. But then I'm working with people who don't, which is kind of a bit frightening. That They're kind of a little bit afraid of engendering emotion. And what happens if it's not the emotion that we as educators are looking for. So, Vygotsky talks about creativity, and he says that imagination is the basis of all human creative activity. So, he describes a creative act as any human act that gives rise to something new, and he goes on to suggest that creativity is driven by both feeling and thought. Feeling and thought—that it's in this, in the in the relationship between feeling and thought, that the imagination resigns, resides. So, for him, what is created through imagination is absolutely based on elements taken from our reality, but these are transformed and reworked with a major emphasis of this relationship, this reworking of experience being the emotion. So. He says that emotion and imagination are bi-directional. So one side of our emotions, they influence our imagination. And on the other hand, our imagination has an effect on our emotions. So every construct of the imagination has an effect on our feelings, he says. And if this construct does not in itself correspond to reality, nonetheless, the feelings it evokes are real. So there's this notion of this cycle of imagination which involves both emotion and experience, knowledge and emotion. So I'm thinking about my students and I'm going to agree with Robin and say, every one of them is creative. Every one of them is imaginative, but I'm going to call what they've got imagination paralysis. And I think what what sometimes happens, when do people get paralysed? I think because sometimes they're malnourished. It could be that my students are malnourished. Now, I'm not saying all of them by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm certainly not saying that they're not creative beings, but something's happened And I'm trying to work out what it is. So the first reason could be because of their schooling system. That as Robin said with her grandchildren, they come to us, these rich and imaginative young people, full of life and inspiration, and something happens that they go into survival mode. One of the things that happens is that actually, they sometimes get really bad arts education too, which actually is in itself trying to be a form of conformity, that's actually requiring young people to go for the score rather than the, the, crea- the creative aspects of their art, be it music, drama, media, visual arts um, or dance. They've actually tried to survive their education system and, and survive their schooling and along the way they've lost a sense of themselves as creative beings. I also think in the education system, because we've separated cognition and emotion, then that could be one of the other issues that's happened to them. They've learned to separate those two processes, which is such an obscure and ridiculous thing to believe, that we as human beings could ever separate ourselves from what we feel. I also think that some of these young people, and and in the most I have to say these are young people, which makes me the saddest of all, the ones that say they're not imaginative are the younger ones. And I think it could be because they haven't had enough unstructured and playful experiences themselves, that they haven't had this chance for a free-roaming exploration, that they haven't had enough time without adult constraints. And I have to say, in, in a busy 21st century life as a student, trying to survive working, studying and just living that there isn't much time in their lives for playfulness, especially for my students who are mostly from low socioeconomic areas such as Logan, just to get to university is a challenge, much less to have time to be playful. So I think I'm asking a lot of them, but it concerns me greatly that they seem to have this inability to let go. They're also... And I think this is a bit contentious, but I'm going to say that they haven't spent enough time engaging with literature in playful ways. I think they've spent so much on-screen time and with those visual images being conjured by the screen, rather than, you know, those days when you lay on a bed for a week and dug into a book and it lived the world for you? I remember crying when I finished Gone With The Wind. I lived there, I was there on Tara, I was there during the war and I conjured images in my mind. Unfortunately, I don't even think my students have got time to read novels, to engage with quality literature, to take those beautiful visual images that have been conjured for them. So, what are we doing to address this? It's all very well for me to have a whinge. Let's have us have a look at what am I doing to try and fix this malnutrition It's kind of a bit like what I'm I'm, I'm actually saying is that the screen time is a bit like um, when kids eat a lot of junk food. They can actually um, still be malnourished even though they're eating a lot. So, they're consuming a lot of imaginative and creative product, but I think they're malnourished because they're actually not doing anything with it. They're passive recipients. So, what are we doing in Arts 1? Well, the very first assignment, in fact, the whole assessment... There's three vignettes required of uh, multiple art forms and their job is to imagine themselves as a creative teacher. Imagine yourself in a classroom and you're looking down on yourself and you are the most creative teacher in the world. What does your classroom look like? What does your arts education look like? Describe it for me and describe learning itself that's rich and creative. So we're actually asking them in their assessment to adopt an imaginative perspective. We also give them the lecture series where we talk about creativity and theories of learning and the role of the imagination and important things about emotion. But the final thing we do is we take them into the workshops and we engage them in arts practices. Sure, we talk about how to teach early childhood children, but we also give them time to dance to sing to compose to choreograph to perform to imagine they pretend they create lullabies they sing songs they make dreammaker blankets and they dance dreams to return a missing dreammaker they use drama strategies to find out where a missing dreammaker is and they do create magnificent cloths of dreams using wonderful artistic techniques at an adult level. They don't pretend to be children, they pretend to be imaginative. Thank you.
0: Our last speaker tonight is uh, Dr Kelly uh, Freebody who's a lecturer in the Faculty of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney. Her research interests include educational drama, creative and performing arts, social justice issues in education and qualitative research methods, particularly conversation analysis and membership categorisation analysis. She brings a fierce intellect to her teaching. Uh, She is a compassionate, outstanding teacher, and she is an inquisitive, curious and rigorous researcher. Uh, Can you please welcome Dr Kelly Freebody?
6: And creative. You forgot creative. creative. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Michael, and thanks, everyone, for being here. Uh, Thinking about what to talk about today, um, I want to talk about something a little bit more... Sort of, I want to talk about creativity, but I want to more talk about the idea of risk as something that I believe is central, a necessary part of creativity. So I want to make some personal observations about risk, um, and they should connect, actually, quite nicely... Um, with the talk that Julie just gave, particularly with her ideas around creative paralysis. I want to give a a sort of a, maybe a different take or an extended take on that. I'm aware that not all risk is creative, but I do believe that all creativity involves risk. There's a lot of creative style work that happens in schools and teacher education programs that actually falls short of actual creativity because it doesn't allow for risk. I agree with so much of what's been talked about tonight. I think that creativity is central to the work in schools, I think it should be central to education, teacher education programs, more creativity I believe is a good thing. But I think that schools are difficult places to find creative risk. Students in schools might be asked to be innovative or to authentically express themselves, but students who do well in those tasks know that that success is actually determined by boundaries of known criteria about what is considered acceptable innovation and acceptable expression. Criteria about quality makes it difficult for unbounded, risky creativity. And sometimes in schools, genuinely new ideas can be problematic because they don't fall into known, testable boundaries. So there are four ideas that I want to posit today about creative risk. They're not necessarily fully formed ideas, and they're not intended to be cumulative in terms of discussions about creativity and teaching. Rather, they're talking and thinking points that we should consider, that I believe that we should consider, Um, When we talk about the importance of creativity in schools, the importance of creativity in teacher education programs and in learning more generally. And the first of these ideas is concerned with risk and protection. So in the current educational climate, one could view teachers that don't take creative risks in their classroom as boring or conservative or even unproductive in terms of meeting general capabilities concerned with flexibility, creativity, adaptability, critical thinking. But... In that same educational climate, those teachers can, and often are, viewed as successful, sensible, and responsible to the needs of the curriculum. So why is that the case? In his book, The End of Education, Neil Postman argues that the strict application of nurturing and protective attitudes towards children have created a paradoxical situation in which protection has come to mean excluding the young from meaningful involvement in their own communities. So I wonder if we can say the same thing about teachers and creative risk taking. That in the current climate in schools, the high stakes -stakes nature of certain kinds of work mean that the best way teachers can protect their students' futures is to ensure that they can do the very bounded work that is valued by the system. And when I say valued, I mean assessed. As an arts educator, I would be perfectly comfortable to tell all of my pre-service science teachers, that creative pedagogy, genuinely risky creative pedagogy, could teach valued work better, okay? That it could teach that high stakes work and so much more. But it's the could that is the problem here because it also means that it might not. Creativity by its very nature is risky and risk, it seems, to many teachers, allows our students to be unprotected. We can say it's a great lie, of course, That system shouldn't be like that and I would be probably the fourth person on the panel to say that and I could talk for my whole ten minutes arguing that systems shouldn't be like that. Um, And researchers would now claim that young people will have multiple careers over their lifetime. Many of those careers will be things that haven't been invented yet. Young people need to be flexible, creative, risk-taking individuals to live successfully in this diverse globalised world. Or is it a lie? Because whether it's useful or not, it is the case that students who are good at certain types of work are more successful. This work is not about creativity or risk taking, it's about understanding and adapting to boundaries. It's about knowing what counts as good work in schools and producing work for reasons other than self-expression, other than learning and other than being valued by students or even teachers. Okay, so that leads me to the second point, is, and that is that if knowing what counts as good schoolwork is important, this second idea is about access. Okay, if risk aversion is a protective act on the part of many teachers, then it may go some way to explaining the work of researchers such as Jean Anion who have expressed a real concern about the uneven distribution of creative work in schools, in classrooms, across socioeconomic lines. If creativity creative risk-taking and creative pedagogy are as important as we as a a panel are claiming that they are, then who's prepared to take risk in their classroom, creative risk in their classroom, becomes a central question for equity and access. So who does take creative risk in their classroom? Researchers such as Jean Anion and Stephen Ball would argue that it's two main types of groups. One, those that are economically and socio-culturally powerful enough to be perceived not to need protection. Okay? And the second group are those that are perceived to be beyond protection. Okay. Those who are so disenfranchised that school provides no real safety. And they may be engaged in alternative education programs and very, very creative work. I've heard Michael Anderson refer to this as ambulance creativity. So the third idea that I want to talk about actually may seem a little disconnected from these earlier ideas, but it's not. It's actually, I believe, at the core of discussions about creativity in schools. And it's about the fact that it resonates strongly with what what lots of the panellists have said, and Miranda's um, idea about creativity as a decision, which I just thought was lovely. And so this is my third idea, that creativity is a skill that is taught and learned. It's a deliberate thing. Creativity, innovation, and creative risk-taking, like literacy, are not passed on necessarily, I believe, naturally or genetically. Rather, they involve generational effort, a deliberate skill building from one generation to another. We now realise that literacy doesn't happen in children simply by being immersed in a literacy-saturated world, although it doesn't hurt necessarily. Creativity, I argue, is the same. It's a key point. It's a difference between having a good idea and having, having a new idea, and having a good new idea and knowing the difference, and that's important. Alex is a professor and dean of built environment architecture at UNSW and is a much awarded Sydney architect, best known for the Federation Pavilion in Central Park. And he argues this, that in art, skill, far from being an intellectual prison, is an emotional and sensual liberator. Skill empowers people. Not to teach young people skill is shallow. If we genuinely want to have a discussion about creativity and, risk, and creative risk-taking as something that empowers our teachers and our students, then those discussions should talk about what it means to teach these skills. So that brings me to my fourth and final point, and that is that creativity and creative risk-taking are discipline-specific skills. It may seem like a subtle kind of a point to end for me on my talk, but I actually think it's a profound idea. The Australian cons- Curriculum considers creativity, or more exactly, creative and critical thinking, to be a general capability. I want to introduce the idea that that's actually not where I think creativity belongs in our curriculum. Yes, absolutely, there are elements of creativity that are general capabilities, flexibility and adaptability, and it should be seen as something that is important to all students. But I believe that creativity and creative risk-taking needs to become a cross-curriculum priority. I believe that taking risks looks different in different disciplines. Scientists ask different questions of the world and take different risks from historians, which is different, again, from artists, which is different, again, from musicians. Creativity and creative risks looks differently and is used differently in different disciplines. I'm not arguing for a siloed curriculum that's unintegrated or siloed views on creative risk-taking. Rather, I'm arguing that if curriculums and syllabus... Sorry, rather, I'm arguing that curriculums and syllabuses should attend specifically and explicitly to the question of what creative risk looks like in their discipline. If this were the case, teacher education programs would be able to dedicate time to teach the next generation of teachers what this looks like, to, to make creative risk a deliberate and central part of the work that we do. We need to make an important part of knowing how different disciplines work and to ensure teachers model that creative practice in the classroom. I think if we could make creativity and creative risk-taking central to our curriculum in these ways, we could make it part of that valued knowledge in schools.
0: So one of our uh, desires tonight was to not only talk about what's wrong with the system, but how the system could change. And I think you might agree that all of the speakers here tonight have really engaged with how we might change what we do. Last night we had a a panel on creativity where we talked about guerrilla creativity or the opportunity to go into our systems and change things. And I think uh, each one of the speakers tonight has really given us some ideas about how we might do that. We're going to now open it up um, to the audience, uh, to you guys to, to ask some questions about, of the panel. Um, I've got a pre-prepared question that's fairly dull, um, but uh, that I'm prepared to use unless someone comes up with a better question. So does anyone, oh, Meredith, what, Meredith Hall uh, is uh, going to wander around with the microphone. Just wait till you're on microphone, please, if you've got a question. Does anyone have a question this evening? Yes the lady halfway up. Sorry, Meredith.
1: Thank you. Uh, so, when I'm listening to all of you ladies today, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is that this is all a very big struggle uh, in terms of what you guys are facing and trying to change. Um, where do you think it all went wrong? Uh, where, do you, yeah, where, where did it go wrong and why?
5: I'm going to say desks.
0: Um. You're on.
5: Is that on? I'm going to say desks. Um, The disembodied nature of learning in classrooms with desks might be a good place to start. That seems like a ridiculously general statement, but the fact that children are increasingly trapped in desks and I mean trapped, I I think they're actually getting to the point where they're almost being imprisoned, um, where children in the prep years, the preparatory years, the kindergarten years, where once they were liberated, they were able to play, they were able to engage playfully, make choices, be spontaneous. They're actually now sitting at desks doing pencil and paper tasks And I think that's the thin edge of the wedge. I mean, if we're already going to engage very young children in that kind of learning, all those things that we talked about, that Robin mentioned about playfulness and spontaneity and all of those aspects um, on on the wheel and all the opportunity for risk-taking is completely made impossible When you're sitting at a desk, it is the most disempowering aspect of education. So if I could do one thing, I'd get rid of every desk and I'd burn every photocopier. (laughs) 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 I don't know that's that's where we've got, but but it's actually part of this kind of early industrial view of education and about children in classrooms locked in and so on. But it's also about where we're currently going in a culture of performativity that's putting huge downward pressure on the early childhood years. Um, and so my concern is that we might end up... These students that I have saying that they have no imagination, I can't
6: see that getting any better. No, don't apologise. I, I, I wonder, though, if it was ever... Was it ever another way? I mean, I, I sometimes... I wonder if the fact that our world is now so uncertain for our adults that are, that are entering, that are leaving school, it, the idea of school as preparation for a particular kind of job, or you're, you're, this, you're from this sort of upbringing and so you will go into this sort of a job and we can prepare you for that and we understand that pathway and now we don't understand any of those pathways and I wonder if that then has created a very public nervousness Um, And concern for our children, um, that is putting enormous amounts of pressure on schools and therefore that has fed this sort of extremely, you know, all the stuff around school choice and NAPLAN and my schools and and it's fed this necessitated sort of performativity, this sort of it's all about test scores and it's all about being able to judge whether or not we're doing well by our kids because we don't know what it looks like to do well by our kids anymore. Uh, I wonder... But then I wonder if it was ever any different. You know, I don't know if anybody else could answer that. Miranda or Robin, do you want to add to? Play. I,
4: I, I see too many kids coming into kindergarten and they've never played. And this means they can't learn. And it's that basic. And it's to make teachers realise they've got to start playing with these kids, because as much as we've got to let kids just play with themselves, uh, we need adults to teach them how to play. In fact, that's what we do as parents. Um, So for me, it's... And that's why I became a drama teacher, so I could just keep playing. Um, And I think play is fundamental to learning. And in in certain households now... In our country, there's not enough play happening and we're not setting kids up for learning, let alone creativity, which I've said, I feel, is learning.
0: And Robin, you were telling the story the other night about... Um, the, was it Save Our Kindergartens in the US? that
3: Kindergarten in Crisis? Yeah, yeah. Well, there is an organisation in the US called Kindergarten in Crisis because... Lots of children and that kindergarten before the school years are not being allowed to play. That's, that's true. I,
4: These and kids that I'm talking about also have no language because they have no play.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, Tony Vincent tells a story about one of the preschools that he visited on the Central Coast where some of the four-year-olds had very little language at all. One little boy who was four had two words which were bad boy. But I, I, I think some of it is about um, parents general, genuinely wanting to do the best for their children. You know, most parents really want that. Mm. But um, I, I guess the community, the communities that we're living in now think that, that um, measurement is the key and you know I think that's another problem I agree completely that we're not allowing ourselves to play enough we're not allowing our children to play enough but also we seem over my lifetime of being a teacher to be measuring more and more um, and putting a lot of store by some kinds of measurement rather than others so Um, I I like to quote Ken Goodman's um, comment that he made in the early 90s, you know, that I never knew a child who grew taller by being measured more often. (laughs) That, you know, we seem to be spending so much time measuring. So kindergarten children in New South Wales schools with the best start stuff... Um, well, they have to practice their their sight words every night because um, they're going to be tested on them the next day and and teachers tell me that they don't have time to read stories, quality literature anymore, because they're too busy doing the best start sight words.
6: And student naps in kindergarten are going, nap time is gone because we've got to do
3: test preparation. (laughs) But, I mean, that's... Yeah, and I, I think that is really serious stuff. You know, the the NAPLAN practice tests are the best sellers in children's books, bookshops because parents think that that's going to help. And I, so I think it's partly about us getting much better at talking with our communities about what is really important.
0: Great. got a question right up the back.
7: sorry uh, hi i think that one of the terms which is really coming forward for me is is fear and i think that it's it's something that happens for new teachers particularly it also seems to be underpinning what we're talking about with parents here fear to do the wrong thing uh it's the idea that don't be afraid of doing this is is not an answer i mean go on don't be afraid you can't stop someone from being afraid People who are afraid of criticism, if they've got a new idea, and I think any new teacher who's here who's gone into a school and said, I'd like to try this, and another teacher has gone, we tried that, it didn't work, just (laughs) shush. And so I think that the idea that fear really seems to come under here, how do we combat that? How do we combat the idea that the parents feel that they are doing the right thing by doing certain things for their kids? Parents who have read every single book and say, all right, you've read every single book, what do you do for your kids now? And they go, I don't know. I've read them all, but I have no idea what the answer is. Everyone wants an answer, a single answer for something. So how do we, you know, overcome that when fear of criticism, fear of failure is still such an, you know, a massive thing in a human, let alone our whole society?
3: Although Marcus Suzak in his latest TED Talk, talks about the importance of being comfortable about failure. So he gives, he gives uh, a couple of really very clear examples where he, he failed dismally but because of the nurturing of his parents, etc., he had the courage, you know, to try again and, and he talked about how as a writer he feels that he fails more than he succeeds but obviously when he has succeeded he's made, had some pretty stunning successes. Yeah, so that's right, well. yeah. Well, I think it, I think it is about um, understanding, not so much failure, but understanding that the more mistakes we make, the more often, um, the more we're going to learn. So it's making those mistakes in an environment where you feel comfortable about doing it and that you understand it is about taking a risk and, and learning from that. And, and that is about creating that sort of context, whether it's at home or at school or with a peer group. It is about developing that, that sense um, that it is good to actually make mistakes. And I guess that, you know... So
7: that our society doesn't value it. Doesn't it? it actually records everything
3: say and puts it on <laughs>
0: Can, can I get Julie's perspective on this? Because, I mean, Julie's working with uh, young teachers who, as, as you've, you've said, are scared of, of kind of being imaginative and playful and creative. How do you overcome fear in, with those uh, young people?
5: I guess um, it's partly related to your point up there about the teacher that says, oh, we've tried that. And so one of, one of the, the biggest challenges is actually overcoming the culture of schools that, have, that persists with the culture of schools, if you like. So there's a wonderful theory, um, I don't know if, if many of you have heard of it, it's called the Crab Bucket Theory, uh, where, um, which is related to both teacher education and nursing education, it's been cited in, where um, apparently, and my husband's a mad crabber, but I try and stay away from them... Um, If you put one crab in a bucket, it will actually make its way up the side of the wall of the bucket and actually escape, um, even if the sides are quite steep or quite slippery. But if you put two crabs or three crabs in a bucket, no crab will ever get out, because as soon as one tries to make its way to the top, the others will claw it back down and pull it back down into the bucket again. Um, And so I say to my students, this is going to happen to you in a classroom when you, when you arrive in a school. You will be kind of enculturated into a schooling system that is risk averse. Uh, all the things that Kelly said, all the things that we've been talking about that's not terribly playful or creative environment. And if you want to be creative or or playful in your teaching, one of the things you've actually got to do is find another way out of the bucket because you're never going to get out (coughs) over the top. So dig yourself a hole through the bottom, do whatever you have to do, call upon your mates, create a collaboration, but whatever you have to do, you have to do something. Because unless we shift the culture of schools, unless we unless we do something within the schools themselves. So it's it's not appropriate for us to sit here as a panel and say, we need to make the young people, uh, they need to develop their imaginations by reading more, or parents need to spend more time reading to their kids, or, or, or we actually have to say, as educators, and I'm guessing there's quite a lot in the room, how do we become more playful, more creative, and more willing to take risks in our work so that we... So I think we need, it's time we started pushing back against performativity. It's time that we, we started saying, hang on a minute, we are professionals here. I always say to my students, you know, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, I, th- I think you need a surg- you know, surgery of some kind, I don't think you would say, look, I went to a hospital once and I know better. And I think politicians are a bit that way. You know, they've been in a school once and so they want us to all teach in that way. And I think we need to push back and say, sorry, This is not the culture that we want. So I think one of the things, one of the ways of overcoming fear as teachers is to start banding together a bit, and I mean academics as well, and kind of start pushing back and saying, what can we do to make schools more playful and engaging places for children to be uh, rather than these places
6: where they're afraid? Can I can I add to yep, that quickly? You can. And I, I also think that you know, it, it, I I agree with Julia that I we should be pushing back and we should be remembering how much we know about our work. Um, and you know that, but I also think we should be reclaiming our classrooms a little bit too, because actually, when you walk into that room with those twenty eight year nine students or whatever it is, and you 've got fifty minutes with them they 're your fifty minutes, the thirty of you are going to make that fifty minutes together, and you actually get to decide how you do that and Yes, it is the case that well you, you don 't think you did, but we could, we could. I think that we could. And I think that it is the case that, yes, there is a curriculum. But, you know, if I'm thinking about the 7 to 10 English curriculum, OK, so you have two years in which you have to cover this many plays and this many books and here's your criteria. But actually, how you do that in your classroom with those 29 kids is your decision, your decision together, the 30 of you. and so, Not in C2C. Maybe not. Well... Sorry, it's
5: not. It is follow these instructions in this time interval. But who
6: knows... Who knows if you are or aren't? You could walk in there and... You've got 50 minutes, there's a closed door. <laughs> Reclaim your classroom. Reclaim your classroom. You know, your students... I think that your students are, are happy for you to be risky with them. I think that students appreciate teachers that are risky with them and I don't think they're going to tell on you if you don't go through the checklist. But <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I think that... I think that we should rise up a bit. You know, you talk about know, reclaiming. But I think also we need to... We need to turn that microscope back on ourselves as well as teacher educators because I, and I think that part of this is the fact that our students uh, they hold down jobs, they hold down families, they hold down lives outside of school they're at uni for the hours that they need to be at uni and they do the work that they're going to get assessed on and there's, it's also high stakes that there's not space there for them to take risks and to do really risky things and to fail um, and I think that that's a problem too so I think that we are beginning that culture even in undergraduate programs.
0: you got- Something I big, just want to say,
6: at a,
4: from a systemic point of view, um, I think I'm taking risks, and teachers are coming with me, and it's very exciting. So we are standing up, and we are making. They're, they're, I'm just saying, forget all the compliance; it's nonsense. We can track it back to anything. It's just they're so wet. Oh, you can, and we just, And I said, don't. And then they're worried. Like, why are we doing dance in year seven? Because I said it's PE. That's why it is. It's just we can get through. <laughs> And you just, you can do it. And I'm in this absolutely privileged position to work in a system where I've got principals and assistant principals ready to run with this and we are just knocking the curriculum over as they see the curriculum and building it from the learning that those kids need in the classroom. And we're having so much fun because we're being creative. And, I, and it's, um, it doesn't have to just happen in your Year 9 classroom. And, it's, it's, and we're, we're taking the community with us. I mean, I've got to see the parents tomorrow at this Delaney College to explain that the kids are going to be doing student-led conferences, that there's no such thing as a parent-teacher interview anymore. Um, and they, this is just turning their heads because back in Sudan, that of course never happened. It doesn't happen in Australia either. Where, teach, where students are responsible for their own learning, not us, spoon-feeding them. I mean, we have this capacity if we stand up together, and I have found others to work with me, and, it, and we are changing very rapidly using creative pedagogy.
0: We've got time for one last question, which is down here. Um, I
7: heard... What's um,
0: <laughs> What's happening?
7: Sorry, I've got the Oh, yes, you you have the (laughs) comments, off you go. (laughs) Sorry to all the others who wanted a question. Um, uh, Thank you very much. I've learned a great deal tonight. Uh, My question is actually to Miranda, and I really love um, the concept you talked about in relation to deep learning, uh, creativity, and 21st century competencies. Um, I'm just wondering, do you actually make a direct relation to climate change and issues of sustainability and... um, thinking about how we're creating um, future or or citizens that are going to be able to grapple with the complex issues of the 21st century. Is that what you mean?
4: What you're talking about is sort of the content side. And as I said to you, the content feeds, is the vehicle that serves the wheel. So to deal with environmental issues, I think we need problem solvers. We need creative thinkers. We need people that are empathic to the rest of humankind. So we go to the wheel as the beginning lens for learning and then the content goes in, which you use your creative skills in order to solve issues about sustainability. That's the way I see it, rather than it's a political agenda. I want kids to find those questions first of all and then start to solve them and come up with creative solutions. It's a different mindset. It's not a political, a PC agenda in that sense. It's not saying you must study these things. I think they're important things, but look at what learning is really about. So I just say, don't worry about the curriculum. These kids will have deep conceptual ways of dealing with the world, so that when they get to 11 and 12, they can do anything, regardless of the
5: HSC. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
5: <All right. laughs> can, Michael, could I just make a comment about... You mentioned that I'm going to China and I think... I just wanted to mention that the, the conference in China is on early childhood drama. There are 225,000 kindergarten teachers in Beijing and the government are very keen for them to learn about creativity. They want to transform the kindergarten educations of children in China to make them more creative. I guess that's a cautionary tale for us. We're heading down the performativity track, down the scoring, uh, rote learning, directed learning route. Meanwhile, um, our our nearby neighbours are adopting approaches to commence a journey towards creativity. I think our competitive edge in Australia has been that we're fairly creative individuals. And unless we can turn that around, I think we're going to be looking in the future and wondering, how did this happen?
0: Kelly and Robin, do you want to have a final word before we uncover the masterpiece, which is your ideas on creativity in song? Oh,
6: I'm looking forward to that. Um, No, I, I guess what I would say is that I think that it's... As teachers... It is the case that we sometimes have a very uncomfortable relationship with the system that we work in. And I think that as teachers, sometimes the system that we work in feels to be or actually does um, directly prohibit some of the more idealistic or some of the more even practical reasons why we all became teachers in the first place. Um, but I think that there is still a space for us through our work to be creative and innovative and change-makers and for us to make massive differences to the people that we work with, colleagues and kids and systems and communities. And I think that um, that we need to try and harness that energy and find those spaces and use them wisely.
0: Robin, have you got a final word?
3: Yeah, I, I really agree with that, Ker- Kelly. I, I think that um, a lot of educators have become de-skilled uh, for whatever reason, and there are a whole lot of reasons why that has happened, I think. Um, and I think, in a sense, we do have to be much more proactive in standing up for what we believe in. So, you know, the research about uh, what's happening with the high-stakes testing, for example, Um the, the teachers are talking about being so anxious they're, they're talking about knowing that the curriculum is being narrowed they know that the children are feeling anxious etc etc why aren't we as educators therefore being much more vocal about what we know is important about the the educative space about um, the kind of teaching, the kind of creative pedagogy that we know is important. Why do we continue to allow um, the politicians, the policy makers, the bureaucrats to impose on us what we know is is not actually helpful and healthy for our children and for us? So I think as a profession we have to really do some thinking about how we can stand up and be counted. Um, We're supposed to be living in a democracy. We cannot allow ourselves to completely allow the the kind of domination that, that we're in danger of allowing to happen, in a sense. And we have to think about why we've allowed that to happen, I think, and why we're denying that creativity, which we know is there.
0: Well, several calls to action there. Um, I hope you're, uh, you're full of energy to go into your workplaces and, and make changes. But uh, before we finish tonight, of course, the act of creativity that we've all, uh, or well, many of us have been waiting for, please welcome Liz back.
1: All right, so this was the weirdest thing I've ever accepted to do. <laughs> Like, like you guys have been sitting there comfortable, learning things. I've been sweating out the back, standing, staring, sticking little sticky pieces of paper on the mirrors and the walls, and it's great. (laughs) So, um, weirdly enough, the word that came up again and again and again and again and again and again and again 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 through it um, was the word freedom. Uh... It was like a good 10, 15% of what you wrote. Uh, Other words that repeated a lot were colour, light. Um, A couple talked about danger. Um, And then some were just weird. (laughs) So, uh, this is a short song made with a lot of love. Accept it for what it is. And... uh, that. And, uh, and, yes. <laughs> okay. i got to get the groove. I think it's there.
2: Freedom, freedom A spark of light Burst in color, freedom, freedom. Light me up really hard to measure. Sunday naked on my trampoline, free falling laughter. Spontaneity, freedom, freedom, a love for life, words and poems, freedom, freedom, a sleeping cat, fresh fun, Ellen.
1: Alan was just Alan. He wasn't fresh fun Alan, but I thought that was better to kind of... I'm trying to work a lot of words in (laughs) here.
2: Freedom, freedom. Baywalk waddle, breathing clearly. Freedom, freedom. Drawing, painting yellow flowers my son Rufus cooking chocolate in the rain I just descend a splash of color my imagination freedom freedom Midnight lights and sleep deprivation. Freedom, freedom. A danger
1: dance and dreams of Daisy or Darcy. It was hard to read. (laughs) Freedom,
2: freedom. A cup of wine. Precious moments, freedom, freedom.
1: Anything goes pink hair and jasmine, tomatoes and basil. Have a yarn, fun flows like fluttering leaves or an ocean of stars, exploding buttons all over your meadow. Thank you very much.
0: Well, I hope you feel um, as exhilarated as I do by what's happened tonight, by that amazing uh, composition, by the the panel who I'd like to thank for such a provocative uh, evening. My thanks also to Meredith Hall, the incomparable Meredith Hall, who puts all these together seamlessly, uh, to the Seymour Centre, to the crew, and, of course, to all of you. Thank you so much for being part of this evening. And I hope uh, you get the chance to put into practice some of the calls to arms that uh, we've heard tonight.